Universities are not just ivory towers. Our role is to provide with uh, good solutions for the big challenges that the world has. Welcome to the Future of Universities podcast series by UIN Media. I'm Todd Davey, and in today's episode, we tackle the question of what sort of role universities will play in the future, including their role as a place for discourse, and we'll also introduce the concept of liquid learning. Don't forget to share our podcast with your colleagues and leave us any comments. It's my great pleasure today to welcome the a guest from, uh, who's the president of IE University, which is one of the leading universities in Europe. Um, his name is Santiago Inugues, in and he has been a recipient, uh, the first recipient, in fact, of the Founders Award by Thinkers50, um, which is a prestigious global ranking of thought leaders in management. He's the author of The Learning Curve, uh, how you know, uh, business schools are reinventing the education and really looking forward to discussing that particular topic with you today, Santiago. There are many other accolades, which uh, I'm sure it would take me about five minutes to list all of them. Um, so what we might do is we might just jump straight into it and uh, kick it off with the, uh, the first question. Um, one of the things that um, maybe it's it's useful for everybody present and all the all, all those listening to this as a podcast, it would be useful for you to know that uh, um, Santiago has provided a really interesting contribution as part of the um, university during times of crisis edition of the Future University Thought Book series. It's a series that we've been running now since two thousand and eighteen, and there's been five editions until now, and the recent. Uh, uh, contribution that Santiago provided, uh, provided a lot of thought and uh, provoking material. And I guess we wanted to take this opportunity today to share the, um, some of the insights from that, uh, from that um, contribution that he made, but also explore it in much more depth. And I think a fireside chat like this is a perfect way of doing that. So maybe if I just um, start with a broader question, Santiago. I think um, you touched on many topics within your contribution. And I guess that, that it was talking about uh, not only the role that universities might play in society, but also in education. And we'll unpack that as, as we go through today. But I really wanted to hear from your perspective, how do you see the university's role presently in society? And maybe also going forward, how do you see that role? Well, first, uh, thanks very much for having me here, Todd, and, and congratulations for the series of podcasts and, of course, for the publication. Uh, well, I, I guess you are touching a very important question. What I believe is that education is uh, the key engine for the transformation of society. So the more uh, you focus on educational efforts, the more you invest in education, the better society you may reach in terms of uh, preparation, in terms of uh, civility, in terms of uh, uh, orientation towards uh, the challenges of the global world. Uh, there's a very clear correlation, and this is actually shown by many different surveys and studies. Uh, those uh, countries and nations that have the better educational systems, they perform better in terms of the economy, in terms of inclusion and integration into society, in terms of entrepreneurship. So uh, the role of universities, I guess, in, in, in the current uh, very challenging world is actually to help uh, the different uh, societies and countries where, the, where they operate 
to become uh, more uh, peaceful, more wealthy, more inclusive, more, more just, more uh, fair societies. This is a big challenge because I realize that we are living in, in times of uh, lots of uh, turbulence and uh, challenges, wars, climate change, which is probably, you know, something neglected by, by many, uh, many people, but, but it's actually becoming a, a, probably the, the most serious challenge for the global population. And at the same time, you know, dealing with all the SDGs that the uh, United Nations has identified very clearly. So universities are not just ivory towers where uh, thoughtful people or uh, wise uh, academics uh, gather, you know, in order to produce arcane research that is of no interest for, for the, the outside world. This happens, you know, at the origin when universities were monasteries, but now they are embedded in, in the society. So our role, I guess, is to provide with uh, good solutions for the big challenges that the world has, to produce research that is of impact and that uh, we can actually develop also the best possible graduates in order that they transform the world for the better. Fantastic. Um, one of the things I wanted to pick up was um, just some of the, the points that you made about uh, how the universities support the societies in which they exist. Um, I just wanted to bring it back down to a more practical level. Maybe you can talk through what you're currently doing at IE University and just talk a little bit about how you're stretching the boundaries of uh, what a traditional university has done. Sure. Thanks very much for for the question, I guess we are lucky on a number of respects, and I very much, you know, respect uh, my peers, my colleagues, uh, those who are presidents and rectors or vice chancellors at uh, public and private universities with a long tradition. We are a university quite young, uh, just uh, 12 years old. We, we were founded by a business school, and I guess that uh, spirit of good management uh, has produced uh, an imprint, is very much visible in our culture, in our governance, the way we operate. And uh, my, my response, you know, uh, for those who are looking to, to, to change universities so that they become more impactful and relevant for society is that we probably need to adapt many different institutions, which is what we tried at IE University. The fact that we were young and modern and new and starting from scratch allowed us uh, to reinvent many different uh, things. So, for example, our governance system uh, is more business oriented. We are a non-for-profit institution by law, so we reinvest all the profits that uh, the activity generates, but at the same time, we take decisions more like a company than in the collegial way that most universities operate. This provides us with a speed which is very distinctive. We can actually respond to the demands from the outside world in a much quicker fashion than any other university. Just uh, to give you an example, I mean, some years ago, we, we launched a joint degree with a leading American university. It took them three years to pass um, the, the, the final approval by the congregation and the faculty senate and the different departments. So uh, the first two cohorts weren't able to get their degree, whereas uh, it took us just, you know, a question of weeks. So if universities have to respond to the actual needs of society, they need to operate like other organizations, quickly, 
And, and collegiality is one of those institutions which probably needs some um, rethinking no? and needs to be revisited. The same applies to tenure. The fact is uh, at IE University, we have a single faculty. So we try to avoid the silos that exist at some other centers in terms of getting too much specialized and focusing on very concrete things, sometimes of uh, non-relevance uh, to the outside world. What we favor is cross-disciplinary research uh, that uh, our professors actually think about the questions from different uh, angles. We were to some extent, you know, a, a maverick university thinking about new ways uh, to develop research and to develop also teaching and, and learning. To some extent, uh, I guess we are disruptors, which the academic world is something which is not uh, seen, you know, with uh, good eyes many times. In fact, I recall, you know, a comment which was uh, uh, inserted in, in one of the accreditation reports in the early days uh, of, of our business school. Uh, a leading accreditation agency uh, described as, a, as an opportunistic. This is an opportunistic business school. Of course, you all know that uh, business schools teach uh, business students to become opportunistic, to seize opportunities. This is the key thing about entrepreneurship. And uh, criticizing an academic institution for being opportunistic is nonsense. So this is what I mean by rethinking and reinventing a number of university and academic institutions, tenure, governance, finance, promotion, the relevance of research. Those are things, you know, that we have discussed a long time about and that are in need of um, uh, revision. We need to, allow me the expression, to sacrifice some sacred cows uh, that have been, you know, living for a long time. And we at IE, uh, well, we have that spirit of actually dealing with problems in, in the way that can actually be solved. We have now five different schools um, that uh, work together in collaboration. The, ones, uh, the, the one that I expect to, to grow faster in the coming years is the School of uh, Science and Technology, which uh, is focusing on developing uh, programs that uh, link with uh, the actual needs uh, at companies and uh, what we try I guess is to bring the, the best of the different worlds I mean we combine the liberal arts tradition the liberal arts tradition which is prevalent in in the Anglo-Saxon world this preparation on the humanities that provides a very good basis for becoming a cosmopolitan citizen with uh, specialization and relevance to jump into jobs and, and in the labor market. No? We, we try you know, to provide also a good preparation in management, regardless your degree. For example, architects, you know, they need to develop their projects in time and budget. Uh, and, and there's this idealistic you know, conception of architecture as if they were starry creators that uh, they, don't, they are not responsive to anyone. So having a good sense of management is relevant for any profession. And the same applies to the humanities. Having a very good preparation on history and um, you know, geography and the different cultures also provides a very good basis for becoming you know, the best possible professional.
It's interesting because uh, we often see this repeated that um, the origins of a, of a school or a university often play out and echo through the generations. Uh, we've seen multiple examples of where a, um, business has been involved in the creation of the university, even over 100 years ago. And to this day, they retain those sort of values, places such as uh, Coventry University, for example. Um, but I had a question because I can see the, that in some ways, having started with a business school, there's, there's the heart of a business school. So maybe a really practical question um, for for whether they're leaders of, of universities or those working within universities, how can we support this movement to a faster, faster way of doing things in a university? Are there some, some things that we can do? Does it start at the top or can we, can we as a, a professional working within a university, can we influence that and, and how? <laughs> that, that's uh, that's, that's a, a million dollar question. question. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's doable. Let's be very honest. It's doable if there's willingness uh, to to make it the change, no. But uh, universities and education at large, you know, is is a very hot potato for most governments. No government wants to see students demonstrating on the streets. So every time you touch, uh, and unfortunately, every time you announce a reform at a university in order to make them more competitive institutions, the different stakeholders, you know, mobilize themselves in order to uh, get on the streets and, uh, you know, uh, oppose any potential reform. So public universities have this problem. I mean, the fact that, uh, I mean, governments, we need, you know, more, um, a, a much more, you know, business orientation on the side of the public administration. But there's a number of, of things that, that are doable. And we find examples, actually, across the world. Universities that, for example, experiment with uh, different tracks for their faculty members. And there's some examples in the US. Years ago, talking about adjunct professors was something close to anathema, yeah? because those who enter the class should have, you know, the academic pedigree. They should uh, hold a PhD in the discipline they were teaching and publish on uh, journals of that discipline and so on. Today, fortunately, many universities count on uh, the contribution of adjuncts who bring fresh knowledge from their experience. And this adds enormous, you know, potential for the, for the learning process. So this is a way, for example, for changing things. Of course, revisiting tenure uh, and the, 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 the criteria that are behind tenure. This, of course, requires, I mean, on the side of academia to do some sort of harakiri and uh, asking, you know, people who are uh, enjoying a good status, you know, to make themselves the harakiri is something quite uh, difficult. But uh, at the same time, you know, most academics are born with uh, some generosity. So if you appeal actually at their prime uh, prior instincts, they normally respond in the best possible way. I guess, you know, uh, there's a need of changing different things. So if we count on the one hand with uh, the willingness of uh, academics and major stakeholders, and of course the support of uh, the government, then the change is doable. No, I guess we are starting to see things happening across the board. Uh, I think it's an interesting comment you made about Harry Curry because um, 
uh, in an innovation sense, um, it's often the question is is raised: Is it better to cannibalize yourself, or be taken out of the market by competition? And I think it's a question for universities generally: Are you willing to um, maybe lose an arm or or a part of your body, but to be stronger and to be able to exist going forward? Um, there's some fantastic insights. Thank you for sharing those. I wanted to explore just a little bit more about some of the roles that you have mentioned in your contribution, because I think they're, they're quite interesting. Um, so for example, you cited the renowned uh, fellow from Oxford, John Henry Newman, you said, who said universities are an assemblage of strangers from all parts in one spot. So I guess my question is around the, the role of universities as a place to meet um, and play, uh, providing a, a location for discourse. Um, one of your comments was a more just, equal, prosperous and sustainable world. So I just wanted to explore that a little bit more. How do you see the, the role of the university as a place to meet and have this discourse? That, that's a very interesting question. As, as you realise, you know, it's a very hot topic these days, causing many, many academic officers, you know, uh, to step down or uh, to present the resignation. So what I hope is that my testimony here, you know, doesn't actually cause my resignation. <laughs> but uh, the way I see it, it, very much, you know, in the same way as uh, Cardinal Newman saw it in the 19th century, at the time when probably the society didn't have the same cultural challenges, that there were lots of challenges. Uh, and Oxford was already, you know, a place uh, where many different people from many quarters were actually attending uh, both... Uh, you know, teaching positions as well as uh, um, holding uh, uh, the, the position of students. But originally, if you think about universities at the time of their foundation in Europe in the 13th century, and you think about the centers of excellence that existed at that time, those were Paris, Salamanca here in Spain, Bologna, Oxford, of course. Uh, the Latin, Latin was the, the, the language of delivery, was the vehicular language, no? So you, you could find, you know, Aquinas uh, teaching in Paris and in Bologna, in Latin, moving around. At that time, you know, the monks, the Black Friars were actually the founders of many of those universities. But there was debate and dialogue. We sometimes see, you know, the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages, but the fact is that they discussed about many different things, including theology. Uh, and that should be the spirit of universities. There's no dogma. Um, of course, I mean, there's things and there's methods. So uh, you shouldn't uh, contradict facts that are proven, you know, that are evident. But things about opinion or concepts that uh, are open for many different conceptions should be the matter, the subject for debate. Concepts such, such as, allow me to put some examples, justice, inclusion, diversity, are concepts which uh, require implementation. And they may uh, allow for different uh, conceptions. Um, let me just put an exam another example. I, I guess we are all feminists. I mean, if, if feminism means uh, defending equal rights for men and women, who should oppose this? I mean. Um, if, if anyone opposes this, 
I, I wouldn't be able, you know, to sit and debate with that person. No? The question lies actually on how we can implement that ideal. I mean, how would, do, do we achieve, you know, that equality of rights between men and women? So I, for example, defend uh, affirmative action as a way to change things in a quicker way. And in fact, here at IE, we have uh, selectively um, um, hired women over the years in order to have a balanced uh, faculty body today. Uh, the business school, for example, has 48% of women uh, on, on, on our faculty, um, the entire faculty, which means that we are probably a significant number of points uh, above uh, the rest of our peer uh, institutions. This is not the result of uh, luck or coincidence. It's actually the result of search, careful search, and exercising affirmative action. Uh, in the similar in, in a similar way to what happened, you know, in the 70s in Scandinavian countries where they decided, you know, to put quotas, and this has resulted over the decades in uh, um, an increasing, I mean, an equal number of women actually at governments in Finland, Sweden, Norway, or if you look at ports, is the same thing. So, if we want to enhance inclusion across different. Uh, uh, companies, boards, universities, then we should care for inclusion and take the necessary measures, whatever it takes, in terms of uh, criteria for admissions, quotas. Having said this, uh, and of course, these demands, uh, revisiting, again, you know, the admissions uh, criteria, SAT um, you know, exams, and, and, and many other institutions, again. What I wonder is how we could preserve freedom of expression on campus so that everybody can actually say freely what they think uh, legitimately, but at the same time, preserve uh, respect for others, tolerance, and not just uh, you know tolerating others, but actually embracing diversity. And I realize you know that there's lots of uh, things that may clash here. And I, let me tell you very clearly, you know, if I can impede a fascist coming on campus and uh, talking, you know, in front of students, then I will do my best in order to impede that. Is this a restriction of uh, the freedom of expression, you know, on campus? Well, uh, it's not. I mean, I may not uh, win uh, this uh, checks and balances, you know, at institutions, but being the president, I, I guess I have the duty, you know, to preserve the best possible atmosphere and also to feel to make feel you know the stakeholders free but safe on the same environment so i will take any uh, possible measure in order to provide room for open debate and for people to express their, their ideas in the language that they think you know is respectful and uh, the best possible way, way to to convey their ideas but at the same time if i can uh, with my power if I can impede someone who defends things, you know, that uh, are beyond uh, liberal democracy and uh, some other values, the rule of law that we all respect, I will do that. No, I don't think this is uh, restricting freedom of expression. I mean, you probably recall John Rawls, uh, the philosopher, the American philosopher, who raised the question in a theory of justice, should we, should, should we be tolerant with the intolerant? And the question here, you know, well, I will try to do my best in order that the intolerant, you know, don't actually win uh, the scene. 
Um, it's a very difficult in some ways discussion. There's some really, um, I think you've had a lot of courage in the way that you've expressed that. And I, I really appreciate that because it's, it's not an easy discussion to have and many universities are, are grappling with exactly the same issue. I, I just wanted to take a, a, a small step further into a practical realm. And I just wondered, is there anything that you have done at IE where you would describe, is it like an event format or is it something you embed in your principles within the educational degrees that you have? How do you then live and breathe that at IE? Well, we, uh, we, we have a student government, which is actually very much involved in running extracurricular activities. As I was telling you, we have implemented a number of um, initiatives in order to uh, reach uh, a balanced uh, faculty. We also provide a very diverse student body. We have 140 different nationalities on campus. Uh, and this brings, for example, people from all continents. Some of them, most of them actually, particularly those who are coming from emerging uh, countries, having scholarships, either half or full. We very much uh, uh, push for a, a very diverse uh, student body because we believe that that is part of the learning process. Learning from people who think and live differently, uh, but living in respect with each other is something that the students get as one of the major lessons from the whole experience. So this again, you know, is not uh, something out of a coincidence, it's the result of having a network of uh, 30 different offices uh, worldwide that are in contact with institutions, with uh, candidates, uh, and that recruit actively in order to have a very diverse uh, student body. So I guess diversity is very much uh, felt and breathed, you know, on, on IE University campus. In fact, if you ask uh, applicants about what is uh, their first reason for choosing IE, they normally respond uh, in an unsolicited way that is actually diversity, what they were looking for. I guess that... Uh, you know, this is something which makes us uh, quite distinctive. So it's not something that we need to artificially implement. It's actually coming bottom up, top down. We are all the time, you know, revisiting uh, procedures and uh, uh, structures in order to favor and bring in uh, more diversity angles. No, And this is actually reflected in many different decisions that we take. The, um, one of the, the comments that you made in your um, your contribution was about around the notion of liquid learning, something you were embedding in IE. Um, I think another way of describing this hybrid learning. I, I wondered if you could just discuss that concept and also how you're doing that at IE. Yeah, we, we refer by liquid learning, we refer to providing the most uh, personalized learning experience, which may include uh, different things. For example, assessing what are your needs in terms of development? And this applies not just for undergraduate students, but also to master's degree students and, of course, executive education. You know that at our university, we cover all the different segments from the, the, the early years uh, while you're at university uh, up to um, executive education, lifelong education, since in time and given, you know, the aging phenomenon, most of the population in the future will be composed of adults. So there we need also to uh, develop schemes in order that uh, upskilling, reskilling, 
become uh, procedures, you know, employed by universities and companies in order to make uh, mature professionals uh, still be, you know, very much active and innovative in the workforce. But um, if I think of liquid learning, I would probably attach at least two points. One is uh, formats and methodologies. And uh, we have been active in hybrid formats uh, over the past 20 years. From the very beginning, what we realized is that uh, the, the, the main advantage, you know, the, the king, as they used to say, you know, was not the platform. Uh, there was a discussion 20 years ago about whether, you know, content is king or whether platform is king. And what we, what we realized, you know, from the perspective of education was that neither content nor platform were kings, but rather, you know, uh, the emperor was the experience. You know? So it's the way you combine uh, technology, apps, uh, the platform, digital content, and uh, you bring the, the faculty in and the program staff and you build up routines that replicate or even improve the learning process in the best possible way. So what we have discovered over time is that probably the best methodology in terms of learning results is hybrid formats. Um, for example, let me just put you, you know, a, a sample of, of this. If, if you run, I always emphasize, you know, blended formats is not just online uh, forms of delivery is not, of course, massive forms of delivery tutor led. Here we are talking about employing the same faculty and preparing professors to teach online as they were doing, you know, an, an impressions class. So uh, what I mean, for example, let me just put you an example of how this methodology produces much better results. In blended programs, and I teach on that sort of classes, you mix uh, all sorts of people. They interact uh, synchronous and asynchronous via streaming, via uh, in-classroom, in-presence uh, sessions. And what you discover is that those extroverts, those who are more vocal no, and participative, normally take the floor, as you uh, probably realize, in traditional classroom settings. They are more prepared. And, and sometimes, you know, this is linked also with cultures because there's some educational systems that favor, you know, that uh, extroversion and that participation, Americans clearly, you no, know, uh, in comparison, let's say, with Asians. Then what you discover when you employ uh, both uh, synchronous and asynchronous, including fora, again, led by the faculty, uh, what you discover is that the introverts participate much more, you know, in fora and other forms of uh, uh, delivery. And, and the synergies are very clear because sometimes introverts are more creative uh, than the more extroverted, you know, the, the ones that react more promptly. So the results of the discussion in class using, for example, the case method are much richer. The class gets uh, much more uh, cohesive. Uh, they know each other deeper than in a traditional class setting. Uh, the interaction is more intellectual, not just, uh, allow me the expression, you know, animal, because in a traditional classroom setting, of course, there's this uh, animal feedback, which is needed at some time. No, But when we deal using different uh, forms and, and formats, 
then we exercise all the different uh, you know cap capabilities intellectual capabilities so the learning process becomes much much more richer if you train the faculty to manage all those formats and to become comfortable uh, using different platforms and managing let's say a streaming cl a class by streaming by using a script and ordering the class so you know it's not just uh, uh, a person, you know, talking on, on the screen, but it becomes the, the best possible replica of a, of a meeting, then the whole experience, you know, becomes uh, fantastic. This is what we are doing now, even, you know, introducing the metaverse and exploring, you know, potential uh, applications of the new technology. So this is the first consequence of liquid learning, putting into practice many different formats and uh, enhancing the learning experience. And second, as I was mentioning before, personalization. What we plan is to assess uh, the needs, the skills, the capabilities of each candidate and try to focus on how we can enhance uh, all the potential of each student. Traditionally, education was a form of standardization. Everybody has to get you know, the same level of knowledge. The good thing about technology today is that they offer the possibility of uh, potentiating uh, the individual, their capabilities, their strengths and, 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 and skills uh, to the best. No? And, and this is what we are now trying to do. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Future of Universities podcast series by UIN Media. Don't forget to sign up for UIN's podcast newsletter at uin.org or follow us on LinkedIn.